0: Welcome to the Making Kids Count podcast, brought to you by Kentucky Youth Advocates, where we sit down with policymakers, community leaders, and youth to discuss ideas to make Kentucky the best place to be young. Now, here's your host, Terry Brooks.
1: Hey, good morning, everyone. Uh, I think we, I think this is our forty eighth uh, virtual forum, so we're approaching, we're flirting with fifty. And uh, we know that some of you have been on every one of them, and we really appreciate it. We also know that for some folks, this is the first time you've joined us, and we are deeply appreciative of that. So uh, it is safe to say that that everybody on this call understood the importance of behavioral and mental health supports for kids before the pandemic ever began. It's also safe to say that the pandemic has made that issue a headline issue. So so folks who didn't talk about adverse childhood experiences or trauma-informed practices or a goal of resiliency, suddenly that's in the popular vernacular. Uh, To me, that is both an obligation and an opportunity for all of us. Uh, I know that... uh, Mahak will probably do formal intros, but I just want to say that, for instance, uh, one of our guests today, Senator Max Wise, was so far ahead of that curve uh, because when uh, the the Senate and House worked together to pass a uh, an omnibus school safety bill, the the real theme of that bill was building a resilient environment in schools. So So we've got folks who have been leading the cause for several years. It seems like now is a wonderful opportunity for so many of y'all who have been doing that on the ground work to elevate awareness, action, and and policy. And and that's what today is. Uh, I think I would just bring two hypotheses to the table. Uh, One of those is that, uh, and you hear us talk about this all the time, uh, This particular arena does not fit in a neat, tightly confined niche. I mean, it has to do with family economics and family structure. It has to do with physical health and behavioral health and mental health. You can't talk about juvenile justice or child welfare or the K-12 system or early childhood and not have this as a a cornerstone. So so first of all, we have to understand that this is a inner arena, interdisciplinary, integrated campaign that needs to happen. The second challenge that, that, and I'm probably sensitive to this, uh, maybe more than some of my colleagues, uh, I I think we got to approach this in a we can do this effort. Uh, it, It is just not enough to say kids are undergoing trauma, or lots of kids in Kentucky have experienced adverse childhood experiences. That that doesn't get us anywhere. So we want to invite y'all to begin helping all of us, and probably Senator Wise leads that pack, let's craft solution-focused ideas. So we, we want to talk about the issue, we want to understand the landscape but we want to invent action to address it. So that's what's so important about this. Uh, and we really appreciate this. this is an unusually large and an unusually interdisciplinary kind of group joining us today, which we love. So we wanted to make sure that that everybody was on the same page before we get into our experts on the panel. And uh, my colleague, uh, Alicia Watley, is going to give us a uh, Reader's Digest version of the arena today. So, Alicia, take it from here.
2: Thanks, Terry. Um, so, like Terry said, I'm Alicia Watley, also with KYA. Um, and today, I really want to just start us off by talking um a little bit about the um, scope of the issue of behavioral health for youth. And really, um, I'm gonna be talking about senior research that KYA conducted in late 2020. Um, and that was with support from the Jewish Heritage Fund for Excellence. So although this research covered both the behavioral health system and what's already available for youth in the local area, it also talked about gaps and barriers and possible solutions. Um, today, we're really gonna be focusing in on some of the main barriers that we saw um, when we did this research. So if you've not seen, um, our report that we've put out, um, KYA did a series of virtual focus groups and an online survey with individuals from various sectors in Louisville, um, really to gather more information about the current behavioral health landscape. Um, So you can see the infographic and the full report on our website. If you've not seen those already, I would encourage you to do that. Um, And we heard from nearly 100 individuals, and those included um, pediatricians, behavioral health providers, residential treatment providers, uh, juvenile justice folks, community health organizations, case managers, educators, and also parents and youth. So um, With that, like I said, I'm going to be talking mainly today about the barriers and the gaps that we heard in our research on um, youth actually accessing the care that they need, but we do want to encourage everyone to um, join us on May 11th when we're going to be hosting a full behavioral health summit, and we will be talking a lot more specifically about solutions during that event, so we'll talk a little bit more about that at the end of today and how you can get involved with that. Um, so moving into some of the main barriers that we saw in our research, um, the first one that I want to talk about is really the cultural relevance of care that's available to youth when they're seeking out behavioral health services. So we heard about a lack of diverse providers and also bilingual providers. So we're talking not only about, um, as you can see a quote here, um, you know, we have African-American teens who maybe are looking for a black male therapist, and they just aren't able to find um, access to a therapist that they feel like they really are comfortable with or can connect with. And then this also, we heard about this um, for our immigrant and refugee communities that maybe need a bilingual provider and they don't feel like they have access to that either. Um, so that was our first big barrier. Um, just gonna see if she wants, yeah, there we go. <laughs> um, the second one we heard about that I wanna touch on is really just the cost of the care. So this kind of goes both ways when it, in, in terms of insurance, whether we're talking about Medicaid or private or commercial insurance. Um, we heard about that there being barriers in both of those areas. So not only do we hear about if you maybe have private or commercial insurance, you might have a large copay that you have to deal with, um, but some specific provider types might not accept Medicaid and might be, you know, private only insurance. So although there are providers that accept both, there are barriers either way to really just being able to afford the the treatment that you need or finding a provider that takes your insurance. Um, And then the next one is really, um, I know Terry touched on this, but really the COVID-19 pandemic has definitely impacted kind of what services look like. And um, we heard a lot about the... Just how the change to virtual was difficult for a lot of youth. So whether that's because they don't find telehealth services to be as effective for them, they would prefer in person and they can't access it, or um, just because they they weren't able to engage with telehealth or online services because um, you know of some sort of barrier, whether that's a home internet access issue or just stability in the home to be able to really access that that care that they might need. Um, The next one that we have here is really on transportation to be able to get to services. So although this talks a little bit about some mobile specific um, issues with transportation, we know that this is likely an issue in our rural communities as well. That if you are trying to access in-person services, if they're not local or there's really just no way to get transportation to wherever those services are, that can be a huge barrier. Um, And I think, you know, with the schools going virtual, um, some students might have been accessing their services at school and they had transportation to school. But then when they went virtual, if they needed to to find a provider at some other location, it was a lot harder for them to get transportation to access that. Um, We also heard about a sort of disconnection within the system that individuals feel is occurring. Um, So although there might be providers available, maybe you go to one provider, um, if you need to access a different provider, change providers, or maybe you have multiple providers involved in your care, um, really there were just some gaps in the communication between those systems. And we heard a lot about how it was difficult to kind of navigate all of those different providers, different systems, um, different places that you're getting care. And so that can be really difficult for an individual, especially a youth, um, who is trying to just navigate finding the care that they need um, if the system's not working together well and communicating well. Um, And the last one that we really wanna highlight today is just about um, having enough specific provider types. So specifically in Louisville, we heard about psychiatrists and evaluation services having very, very long wait lists. and again, these are examples, like I said, in Louisville that we heard about, but we know that across the state and in different communities, there are likely other shortages of certain specialty services that, that uh, youth might need. So um, just trying to access the right kind of services that you might need if it's a specialty area um, and not having to be on a long wait list to get that service. Um, so that was just kind of, like I said, an overview of those barriers and gaps that we really heard about in our research. Um, and we will be talking more about solutions and also a, a larger contextual conversation at our summit, and I'll give you all information about that before we leave today. Um, but now I want to turn it over to my colleague, Mahek, and she's going to introduce our panelists and um, really give us a chance to hear more from them about what they see in their areas.
3: Thank you, Alicia, and thanks for grounding us on the gaps of youth, the gaps that youth are experiencing um, when they're trying to access care. Um, So today we're going to connect with our panelists to discuss this in more details. So we have our multidisciplinary team here, um, which includes state Senator Max Wise, representing the 16th district. That includes Adair, Clinton, Cumberland, McCrary, Russell, Taylor, Wayne counties. I'm trying to do that really quick because Senator, you have a lot of counties you're representing. Um, And then Dewey, Uh, Rains is here as well, a Behavior Health Director with Cumberland Family Health Centers. Um, We have Maria Gurren. she is the Public Protection Coordinator with the Louisville Metro um, Criminal Justice Commission and then we have Rainey, who you might recall from a earlier advocate virtual forum who is with the um, Jefferson County Public Schools. So with that being say, uh, said, I am going to ask all the pan- panelists this one question. How did these findings resonate with you? And how are you seeing this in your community? So this is just really an open, whoever wants to start and start us off.
0: So I I actually am with Fayette County Public Schools in Lexington. Uh, And although we're a a significantly smaller uh, district, but still an urban community, it very much reflects the same barriers that that we see as well, Um, in particular, access to culturally relevant providers and bilingual providers. And we've been really intentional in trying to recruit individuals to meet those needs. but it found kind of a limited talent pool uh, that, that could fulfill that. So um, that is something that I feel like universally is an issue, not just in Kentucky.
3: Thank you, Rainey. Sorry about that. I had Fayette County listed on my notes. Um, well, does anyone else want to chime in?
4: Heck, I'll jump in. In terms of uh, of, of my Senate district talking to superintendents and talking to some school administrators, you know, the the issue involving broadband uh, was definitely a hurdle for many families. Uh, The areas that I represent in South Central Kentucky um, you know, are, are, were trying their best uh, with COVID. Some of them actually were having to go to to parking lots of a Burger King or to a McDonald's just to be able to get onto Wi-Fi. And I think that was for not just such a Rural Kentucky, that was other parts of Kentucky as well. I am glad to see that the legislature this session is stepping up their broadband efforts for funding that's going to help with that. But we know that in the world we live in today, uh, access to to internet is just like access to water. It's like access to, to any of those dire services that we all need but i think that you know with telehealth it it's it's such a great opportunity to be able to do but i think that there was there was some disconnect there uh, just from 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 leaders that i i did speak to and you know we just had a hard time i think just in general sometimes of just connecting with students we just seemed like we just because of the digital age that we're in with what covid presented you know, there was just some some relationships that were lost. I'm, I'm looking forward now with the return of in-person education. I think I speak for a lot of educators. It's good to get those kids back in those classrooms and hug on them and love on them and those type of things we need to do. But I think that's why this is so important in this discussion today, you know, as we go forward of making sure that those relationships continue to be fostered and developed. And we, you know, we don't lose those relationships over the summertime, that we continue to to advocate and, and keep those um, uh, those services provided.
3: I think that's a, such a good point, um, and I think we've heard that when we are working around um, Senate Bill 1, often was that one caring adult um, in a student's life and what the impact that made, so I appreciate you bringing up that point. Dewey or Maria? Uh,
5: I, I will add um, from the psychiatric piece, historically, um, the long way of getting uh, children in to see psychiatrist uh, sometimes at mid-months, and People in, in dire need of, of those services have had to just sit and wait. And telehealth maybe has provided some solution to that. But I, I would say in our area, that that has been probably one of the more dire needs, I would think, just looking back over the years. And uh, hopefully, hopefully um, telehealth has and we'll have that, but in person, no, I think it's still an issue for us.
6: Yeah, the only thing I'll add, um, you know, there were a lot of things in this report that were kind of already on our radar and that we've talked about in the past, but these are systemic issues that are really difficult to address. And so I think it's good to to refocus. I know going through the process and being a part of one of the focus groups that kind of informed some of the report, you know, we had a similar assessment that was done specifically for justice-involved youth um, back in 2017 and published in 2018. And unfortunately, a lot of the findings are really similar. And so um, I'm glad that Terry kind of started us off with a solution focus because I think that um, a lot of us do have an awareness of of the issues but they're they're really big issues and so um i think this is really helpful in just refocusing on some of those same things that we know are our gaps and our barriers for our
3: families thank you for that and that kind of segues us to really senator wise i want to hear from you um on you know what state level policy decisions whether you shape them or influence them by just voting for them have happened this past session and also previous sessions? Well,
4: you know, COVID presented a unique opportunity to divide the budget into half. We've never done that before, instead of it just being, you know, when COVID hit there in, in February, March of 2020, you know, we made the made the decision then to do a one-year budget for 20 and then a one-year budget again in 21. So basically what we saw in the 21 budget this year was, was almost identical, about 85% of what we did in, in 2020. And I, I really thought though it was unfortunate because we had so much momentum after Senate Bill One of the, putting the funding mechanism into place, and uh, just because of, of what happened with COVID, we really had to had to shift, and, and not just for Senate Bill One, it was for a lot of other areas, a lot of other services that probably didn't get the amount of funding that we really were hoping that we could have done. Um, we hope that you know going forward with uh, more federal dollars that are coming in, that you know we can look at some of the the money we set aside in our rainy day fund that we can look to shift that and go back into mental health for, for schools and for districts. Because, you know, what we were looking to do, and I appreciate Terry's comments about, you know, the school resiliency and school safety act that we did. And I want to give so much credit to Dr. Joe Bargione. I know many of you all know uh, Joe. And, you know, when I had him as part of that task force, you know, he he was the one that came up with the resiliency part because, you know, so many times we think about you know school safety, we focus on the the structure, we focus on infrastructure, we focus on hardening of schools. And that's not what, you know, when we got to the matter of the the task force that was formed with that, it was more about the hardware of what was inside the schools and those relationships, you know, with with teachers, with students, with just school personnel. And so I really hope that when we go back into next session, you know, we can look at those funds because we do need uh, funding for more school counselors, more school psychologists, more school social workers. I mean. And, and I may be leaving groups out, and I apologize. I, there's so many that work on this that we need to make sure that because of COVID, when we get these students back in, we we you know we, we shudder to think you know what what this past year has been on so many families, and you know we we, we just need to make sure that those services are there to provide. And if it's funding mechanisms, I, I think for this next year, as we go back when schools get reopened, we're going to learn a lot more of some areas of need, and I do think childhood mental health and mental health services are going to be a major priority as we go into 2021 and in 2022.
3: That's so exciting to hear. Are there other um, solutions that you all as a legislature um, talked about that we want to elevate?
4: You know, one of the things that we did this session, uh, it was Senate Bill 128. I know Kentucky Youth Advocates, you know, were involved in this. It was kind of what me people are calling back the hold back bill, the redo bill. And I think for a lot of families, they're looking at this as you know a learning opportunity. Uh, it also could be you know for for children just need you know uh, another you know uh, a recharge of, of a year of, of learning. And I think educators and I know there's many on here you know did their absolute best with what was presented. You now they try to make you know lemonade out of lemons, but we know that you know it's hard to replace in person learning. As, as Dewey mentioned, the same thing about telehealth with in person counseling? Uh, I really hope a lot of families, especially at that k through eight level, look at the ability to maybe get another supplemental school year back. And I think that can be for for mental rejuvenation for a lot of students and also for academic learning and and so many things that that we can say, you know there there were some major opportunities and learning outcomes that were lost this past year. And once again, that's not on any fault of any educator. Uh, But I really hope as we looked at this policy this session, that was one thing that many, many legislators were like, let's give these kids a chance for a do over. So I think that that can relate to mental health. I really do. I think that uh, sometimes some of the kids best memories and, and we think sometimes it's juvenile. But just think about, you know, you know, prom for many kids, just think about so many things that were maybe taken away but also to get those kids up to speed, third grade reading levels, so many things at that kindergarten level uh, that may be an opportunity for families to discuss and look at.
3: Mm -hmm. It's all interconnected. Um, Maria, turning it over to you, um, as someone who works with uh, justice-involved youth, we know lack access to front-end services and resources, including behavioral health. And that's not, that's pretty common, uncommon. So, um, can you talk about the barriers that exist and the impact it could have on young people and their families?
6: yeah you know I think a lot of the barriers that were already talked about um apply to justice involved youth. I think too about you know a lot of my work is looking at racial and ethnic disparities within the juvenile justice system and what kids and families are referred to the juvenile justice system and so some of the barriers that are at the forefront for me are related to um the cultural competency of providers and having a diverse set of providers and I know one of the findings kind of focuses on the fact that we need um, more diverse providers and that we need, you know, providers of color to be trained and, and um, folks to go into those fields. And I totally agree with that. I also think we have to talk about um, the providers of color that we have. Are they given access to youth who are in these systems? I know a lot of times um, it's kind of been the practice to refer to our um, large, Community mental health providers and they play an extremely significant role. I don't want to downplay that. But also, I think a lot of our um, providers of color can sometimes be in um, smaller practices or independent practices. And, you know, are we seeking them out? Are we making sure that um, the school system is partnering um, with those providers of color? Because although we definitely need more. Um, I could probably come up with a list as a social worker myself of, you know, 25 um counselors of color. And so I, I think that just off the top of my head, so I think we also have to talk about the um the access and making sure that um our referral sources, especially places like the juvenile justice system and school systems. And um, because I know that, you know, one of the findings in the study was that. Um, you know, Jefferson County Public Schools is obviously one of the biggest referrals for services. And so are they aware of all of the different um, providers of color that may be able to address that that initial barrier? Um, and I think too, you know, we, and I appreciate KYA for always having the systemic lens and the policy lens, because I think you know, I was in a training the other day and um, around equity and Dr. Dante Bryant was facilitating the training and he said something that really stuck with me that um, we can't heal individuals faster than systems can harm them. And so always going back to what are the systemic factors that are contributing um, to a lot of the issues that we see that are showing up um, in places like schools and in the juvenile justice system.
3: Are there um, innovative strategies or resources that you could lift up just in in your sector, what you've seen?
6: Yeah, I do think that in my experience, um, folks who work for justice agencies here, um, you know, we have a great relationship. And just for a little bit of background, I coordinate the Jefferson County Juvenile Justice Advisory Committee, so we have um, probably close to 30 members on that committee from folks who work within the system, um, within the juvenile justice system, including prosecutors, uh, public defenders, um, court designated workers, Department of Juvenile Justice. And then we have service providers, um, community representatives, government officials. So um, we have a great network. And I think that the juvenile justice providers in Jefferson County have been able to connect with some of those um, providers who haven't always had access um, we've also collaborated within the last year specifically on some violence prevention work and getting kids who are um, at the highest risk of being either victims or perpetrators of gun violence, um, connected to mental health services, case management, um, things like that. Um, I also think, you know, we've been growing our relationship with JCPS and trying to um, present some of the um trying to approach JCPS with the offer to help rather than criticism. I think that JCPS gets a lot of criticism and I think a lot of that is legitimate, but at the same time, kids show up to schools with all of the issues um, that we have in our community and families show up to schools with all of the um, challenges that are you know, larger societal issues and to expect the school district to kind of shoulder all of that alone is also not, um, not realistic. And so I think building out that partnership, And um, we've talked a lot with JCPS over the last year about, um, you know, how they're prioritizing social and emotional learning and social and emotional health and wellness, um, and preparing for specifically in juvenile justice, preparing for kids to come back to school, Um, and knowing that there may be a lot of behavior issues considering um, the trauma that some of our youth and families have gone through in the last year, whether that's, you know, grief and loss surrounding COVID or dealing with isolation um, or, you know, the impacts of um, the killing of Breonna Taylor and the protests that have been going on in our community. I mean, a lot of, you know, that racialized trauma too and how our um, schools preparing to be able to um, support teachers in responding to those behaviors that doesn't result in filling up our court system.
3: Mm-hmm. Looking at those alternative um, sources um, and getting to the root, going back to what you said earlier, getting, really getting to the root of the problem. Um, I appreciate that. Rainey, as a school-based mental health provider, what are some practice changes that you've had to overcome to ensure that kids had access to services throughout this pandemic? I know we've been through ebbs and flows of virtual, hybrid, in-person. So, can you talk us through that? Sure. Um, you know, initially, it was co-
0: connectivity was our barrier, um, and as we were able to overcome that with. Uh, Chromebooks and hotspots. Then our next thing that we didn't think about is we have all these filters on our devices, which are a good thing, but they filtered out telehealth platforms. <laughs> so we had to go back and kind of um, re rework that. Um, and then internally, our, our staff, we have fantastic school counselors, psychologists, social workers, and other mental health specialists on, on our team. But they are trained to do in person. So we had to really um, dig deep, find some good training about how to engage students um, through telehealth platforms. And for many that it, it worked, um, but I, I noticed in the chat, similar barriers to, to what Kate mentioned about, for some um, being in the home, being overheard by siblings, caregivers, etc. cetera, Um, didn't create that same safe space um, that we could provide in person. So that was a a definite barrier. But on the flip side, our school-based providers saw the incredible value of having ongoing collaborative effort with the parents. Because when you're at the school, the parents aren't there. Um, And so a lot of times there's a a disconnect. So that was one of the things, um, I think, there have been several positive outcomes for for us as a district in really reevaluating the way we approach student mental health. Um, But one of the the biggest for me has been seeing how our team is um, looking to engage families in a different way.
3: Were there um, innovative solutions that you've incorporated during this time?
0: Um, So... Prior to this, we were already working in partnership with a couple of our juvenile court judges um, and we have gained momentum in a juvenile treatment court model. So, um, and we will actually as a district provide a staff social worker to really work as a liaison to ensure um, that the educational system and mental health supports are in place for these students to keep them um, out of the juvenile justice system uh, as much as possible. was um, very commented on this. She um, partnered with us uh, to, to write a grant about providing very intentional grief support groups because so many of our students that are involved in juvenile justice have complicated grief histories. Um, and so finding a way to help normalize that among their peers um, and do some preventive and responsive work a few other things that we that we have seen is a greater interest we we've had for the past I would say six to seven years outreach for educating staff and parents with regards to child and adolescent mental health. But the interest has been peaked greater because we're really seeing um, the the out the fallout. I guess I would say of of the pandemic and the impact that's had on mental health. So we're trying to really leverage that um, to get the word out. And also I noticed another comment from Kate that I couldn't agree with more is um, the reevaluation of duties of our school mental health staff. Um, I have been trying to advocate that for most of my 19 years in in the school setting. And I'm really starting to see momentum with that. It's not going to be an overnight thing, but really reevaluating job descriptions, looking at how we're utilizing all of our staff to fulfill um, the, the wide range of needs of
4: our students. Mahat, can I kind of jump in on that? Because yeah. I saw the, the question that, that Kate had in the chat and it's so much easier to talk than it is for me to type back. But I appreciate that question tremendously. And The point was made or asked in terms of did was there some momentum lost. I think I've got to be very transparent and honest that yes COVID caused that to happen because it's not just that but if you look at drug overdoses you look at so many things because of COVID we've had to completely almost take our eye off other issues and I do believe that if if that had never happened, I think the momentum for funding was going to be at a very very high rate. I, I, I truly believe the legislature, regardless of party politics involved in, in in that, it was going to be be highly funded. That doesn't mean that we can't go back and do that. I, I, I do think we will. In um, in the duty role, I, I learned of that. Linda Tyree. I'm sure Kate, you know Linda. The hard work with school guidance counselors uh, across the state you know, I was astonished to learn that we had school guidance counselors doing uh, bus room lunch monitoring and and things such as that and not really able to be doing counseling. It was more of, well, you provide testing, go in the classrooms, hand out the test, but not true counseling. So Senate Bill one had put in there that I think 60% of the role of the counselor would be counseling. So that needs to be also made sure at your local district school level that principal school administrator superintendents know that's law. So that's not a, that's not a funding issue. That right there was actually a a fulfillment of job requirements. So I want to make sure that, you know, if there are those issues that are happening in school districts that needs to be, you know, addressed at the local district level. Um, and, and we're happy to put out any more guidance. We need to, if that needs to be done, I'm happy to talk offline with anyone that's having problems with their district as that relates to that issue.
7: Thank you, Max. And I would, I would like to just add on that I think <clears throat> on, on one hand, COVID has drawn a lot of attention and a lot of funding away towards away from Senate Bill 1. But on the other hand, I think it has made it abundantly clear how important the work is because there is a lot more voice in the community about my kid is not okay, I'm not okay, social emotional health. And, you know, it is such a shame because our kiddos in, in this district, um, we came back before some neighboring districts, that's for sure. But um, we came back and now our counselors are all preparing for K-PREP. So we've got these kiddos who are desperate to um, to talk and to share and to have some reserve time for social interaction with adults or other students. And we've really got to tell them like, Hey, I hear you. You're important to me, but I need to go work on testing. (laughs) Um, And my district in particular has said until there's funding, they're not doing anything.
4: I appreciate that. And, And you have my commitment, you know, that we will continue to work on that. And, and you're exactly right. I've heard from so many families of my child's not the same um the 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 learning loss the academic loss over this year you're, you're completely right and um I, I also find it very frustrating i spoke to a fifth grade class yesterday in russell with jametown elementary in russell county I even had the students asking me, why are we testing, you know, Mm -hmm. but we put them back in the classroom and all of a sudden we're hit right there with K-Prep and, you know, some of those decisions are outside of our hands as legislators uh, because a lot of that was coming down from the federal government of pushing onto the states. And um, that may be for another topic that we can get into, but, but thank you, Kate. I appreciate you bringing that up.
3: Thank you both for bringing it up. Um, Rainey, was there anything else that you wanted to mention? Are there other opportunities that you've leveraged, or continue to leverage during this time? Um, a couple of other things
0: that really already in the works. One was universal social-emotional learning instruction for all students. And good or bad, our rollout was for the school year. So uh, we've had to really adapt that to the virtual setting, but how fortunate we were to have already had some of those tools in place to help our teachers navigate some conversations and and build relationships within the limitations of a virtual reality. Um, And we've also really uh, been able, as part of a trauma-informed system or our efforts to move into a trauma-informed system, had um, the opportunity to to really expand our self-care, care care for the, the caregiver initiative, and had a lot of support for that. Um, And I think interest in that from the provider. So that, that too has been a positive
3: outcome. Well, thank you for that. And I'm going to now turn it over to Dewey to really talk about, you know, the provider perspective. Um, You know, you as a provider had to overcome a lot as well. Just, you know, there was a period of time where you weren't practicing. And then there's a period of time that um, telehealth was expanding and we were kind of thrown into telehealth. Um, And then now, folks of whether they're returning back. So can you talk about really the practice changes that ha- that you had to overcome during this time?
5: Yeah, let me, let me start by talking about um, our services a little bit. Um, we're in a number of school districts um, across central and, and southern Kentucky, and um, our model is to be in the school and part of the school uh, where the children see us as part of the school milieu and, and become very comfortable with this. Well, over the, over the course of, of building that up and working with the school system, we had several, several children that we were seeing and um, through our Healthy Kids program that, that, that also, um, you know, has nurses and uh, uh, medical providers as well there. And in March, as you guys well know, when we hear the schools shutting down, we're, we were like, you know, and these kids were going home, it was a perfect storm because there's there's not any mental issue uh, that the pandemic uh, could not have made worse with depression and isolation, with anxiety and uh, the, the fear, uh, I've heard it almost described as a marathon where the, the goal line keeps moving and your your body finally just gets tired and, and warm with that. And, and we're like, we can't drop services. We have to figure something out. And we, so within two weeks, we were able to transition from in-person in school to telehealth and through um, actually training our kids, how to use Zoom, uh, getting licensed, uh, all the steps that we had to go through, to make that happen. Now that was successful for the most part. And there was there was those folks who did fall through the cracks because of connectivity and, and those type of issues. But going forward, I think what we've got to keep in mind is this thing has been a trauma uh, for us all. You know, I personally lost my mother to COVID during during this past fall. And as we move from this unstructured back to the structured environment, we realize that many of these children are going to have issues and and we're anticipating that next school year uh, post-trauma is when some of those are are really going to hit. hit. And so what we're doing is we're getting ahead of that. Uh, We're creating some psychoeducational um, groups that we can do some uh, interventions that maybe we hadn't thought of in the past to just have present and ready a school open. So the other thing we're doing is we're we're interviewing counselors now to beef up our presence when school starts because we are anticipating issues not only from the children who are normally acting out having those, but the kids who. Maybe hadn't before come to the attention of folks whose stress levels uh, and potential—I don't know how, how best to say this—but probably concerns about their education: will they graduate on time? What is this done? And those kinds of things. So we're trying to get ahead of that that curve. And I—I don't—I don't know. Uh, how best to do that. But we're thinking just throw everything we have at it and um, be prepared.
3: Thank you for that. And I'm sorry to hear about your mother um, as well. So I send my consult condolences um, to you. Can you talk really um, more about, I know that I heard you speak recently um, about the dental and medical and and behavioral health, integration that you're doing?
5: Yeah, I can. Uh, we, we are a FQHC and part of our, our goal is, is integrated services. We, we have therapists in primary care offices uh, across our, our regions. We have therapists in uh, women's care facilities in pediatric clinics and also in the schools. Uh, within the school system, we have our, uh, nurses and providers, and we work very closely together to coordinate services uh, among uh, our clients and deal with that uh, from a seamless aspect, a, a service coordination piece where we, we do communicate uh, some things that we we do have I think going with and some of the barriers you mentioned before we've anticipated and dealt with you know we we see children uh, no matter their ability to pay uh, and uh, so we, we have a lot to offer in that respect and um, look forward I guess to offering more and uh, as, as it goes on and uh, hoping that uh, this soon kind of ends for us all, but anticipating that when it does, I think is when we will see some problems that we we haven't seen yet. Mm -hmm.
3: I appreciate that perspective. Um, Moving forward, you know, I wanna kind of shift gears to ask, what can people do who care about this topic? So thinking about your audiences and your sectors that you represent, Dewey, Rainey, Maria, how do we ensure systems um, within your community, but also across the state are responsive to student behavioral health needs?
5: Well, uh, this is what I would say uh, is integrity and relationship. Uh, If you provide the best quality service that you can, for the for your patient and you and you're working with your community partners and you go into that with that type of relationship then you're going to expect that from those guys as well and if you if you set the bar high for that then other people have to if they're part of your treatment team and and if you're looking after after your business and you're looking after the well-being of your patient then you would expect uh, the other folks to be as responsive to those needs as well.
6: I think for for youth in the juvenile justice system, um, the thing that kind of comes to my mind when you ask that question is for um, their behaviors to first be viewed as an expression of a possible mental health issue or trauma or stress or something like that. And just kind of slow everything down, um, rather than respond to the behavior, um, in a criminal justice way, how can we divert that young person from the system, knowing that the the criminal justice and the juvenile justice system causes harm and and trauma in and of itself, um, and allow those kids, um, the space to be able to talk about some of those underlying issues and have that response be something that is grounded in mental health and behavioral health, um, rather than responding um, in a way that focuses on, you know, the quote unquote crime. Um, I think we've criminalized a lot of very typical youth behaviors um, and how those responses can be focused on some of the the root causes of what's going on in the home, what's going on in the family, do families need support? I know one of the things that came to mind earlier um, when Senator Wise was talking about statewide things, I think COVID has really showed us just how many parts of our society come to a screeching halt when um, schools and childcare facilities are closed. And so how are we supporting families and especially um, in particular mothers and caregivers um, in being able to balance all of these, all of these things that are really impossible to balance. Um, I know representative Josie Raymond has talked about that and just a lot of her ongoing work around, you know, universal pre-K and uh, childcare assistance for families and things like that. So I think about that as another, um, potentially statewide, statewide response, because I think the burden on families has been overwhelming and it's, um, it's endured for such a long time that I think what Dewey was talking about that we haven't necessarily even seen some of what the fallout of that is going to be. Um, And I think that's no different for for justice-involved kids and families, That supporting supporting them within the home and within the community um, so that with a response that's not always a justice response that can be more of a behavioral health response.
5: I will say that I feel more encouraged. I, I started mental health um, field in, in the late 1980s, and this is 2021, so that's going on five decades, and, and I feel more encouraged now than I have any of that time because people are realizing mental health, uh, they're, they're realizing the concerns, and the, see the importance of intervening in in children's life, especially youths at early age and and the earlier the better.
0: I think um, a couple things that that I see is continued that we continue to need to focus on is one, outreach and education. Um, and really looking, at, as you said earlier, at the behavior is is really a means of communicating a need. Um, and typically, it's a psychological need. Um, so really being intentional within the school setting, not just for our staff, but for our families as well is really shifting from that behaviorist model. And that's the way I think most Americans look at um, our, our kids, but to a more um, nurturing, re- resilience building and supportive reteaching expect, expectations. Um, the other thing I see is the the, incredible need this has always been there but of collaboration very intentional collaboration among agencies you know um, community mental health providers can't do this alone schools can't do this alone Um, faith-based organizations community centers all of us we can't do it alone so really um, being intentional to build those partnerships and um, having ongoing honest communication and and owning our parts in it the good the bad
3: Ugly You were reading my mind, Rainey. I wrote that down multiple times. collaboration, whether that's partners, parents, community members, whatever that partnership might lead students, of course, you know it needs to be a collaborative effort. Um, Senator Wise, if you were speaking to your legislative colleagues, what do you hope to see um, in 2022 in terms of policies and budget investments after just hearing this conversation and then just your, um, just your insight? Um, and then also, I'm curious to see if you have any bold policy su- suggestions even past 2022.
4: You know, the interim gives us the opportunity to really talk about ideas and initiatives as we go forward into 2022. And so those that are not familiar with the legislative process, we start back in May. We run from May through November with our committee meetings that are just highlighting, you know, many times the topics that we talk about during the interim are topics that turn into policy ideas. Uh, it will once again be another budget year for us to go into with 2022. I think one of the key things that we're gonna be pushing on is data collection and research to see exactly how COVID-19 has affected our K through 12 students. And I think uh, we're, we're gonna to have to have uh, some uh, groups through Kentucky Department of Education or our other think tank groups we have within the Office of Educational Accountability, be able to get some really good research and data on some of these, uh, these, these um, you know, th- things that were missed in terms of, you know, mental health, in terms of learning outcomes, all those type of things to look at, because we have to address that. And going into a budget year, just like we've talked about before, I think that's where the advocacy of groups that are on here today need to keep this in the forefront. Let's not just have it a one-time Zoom in April and not get back to it until November. You have to keep hammering at this. You have to keep contacting your legislators. Uh, it's for us as legislators to have meetings that will center around this. Uh, We've not yet made our education committee meetings out yet of what the interim is going to look like, but I do think that this could be one of those focus points is about funding going into 2022, uh, especially as it relates to let's go back to Senate Bill 1. Uh, And I think that that can be something that we can champion on. And, And that's also with collaboration. I think a lot of times What I've learned in my role is sometimes issues like this come into turf battles and turf jurisdictions and groups thinking, well, we're more able to do this than other groups. You can't do that in now, in our today's time. Everybody has to work together, take down the fences, take down any barriers. This is about kids. And at the end of the day, we're trying to do what's best for kids. So it's seeing social workers, psychologists, counselors, you name it, school administrators. And I do think Dewey said since the 1980s, this has definitely changed. And I do think that, you know, we we have to take that approach. And as legislators, you know, we have to be committed also, you know, to mental health funding and services being provided. Uh, I'm only one of 138. So I wish I could speak for every one of us, but uh, I do think with my time that I've had in the legislature, people who know me know my intentions of knowing, you know, who I am—not just as a legislator, but a parent of four children. Uh, the focus should be on providing services to our kids across the Commonwealth. So uh, I do think that's going to be an issue, Mahawk. I look forward to working with you. Look forward to working with other groups that are on here. You know, as we go into twenty twenty two.
3: Thank you for that. And um, I think you're turning into a true KYR with your first response being data collection, since that's just exactly how we operate here. Um, so I appreciate that, that comment. Um, well, I am going to thank you again for this amazing conversation. I think we've made some great progress and I look forward to hearing more from each of you. And I hope everyone joining us got a taste of um, really what we can work towards. Um, And so with that being said, I'm going to turn it over to Alicia to close us out.
1: Hey, Mahak, I never jump in like this. and I'm going to let Alicia close out, but I I just want to affirm, because I think so many people on this call hear elected leaders uh, say things like the Senator just said. What what I wanted to affirm, and I'm sure Dewey knows this as one of Senator Wise's constituents, when you hear Senator Wise say that, he actually means it, uh, and uh, he knows the deep, deep respect that we hold for him as a as a kid champion, uh, as somebody who galvanizes Frankfurt action. So uh, I'm going to invite you to do homework. Probably, meaning Senator Wise will get thousands of emails, and then he'll call and not be happy with me. But, but I, I just it was really important to me to reiterate that when when Senator Wise says. He wants your ideas. He actually wants your ideas. So don't be passive. Uh, Be grab that invitation. And Senator, I just, you know, I just needed to publicly affirm how deeply appreciative KYA is to the way you represent kids. So sorry to. Zoom bomb you, but I just wanted to say that and uh, uh, Alicia, take it from here.
2: Thanks for that, Terry. And I will say that I think we heard some really great insights from all of our panelists today just about how this issue looks across the state and also across sectors um, and how important it is for all of us to continue to work on this issue. Um, So again, we wanna thank our panelists, um, Senator Weiss, Maria, Dewey, and Rainey, all of you for being here today and taking your time to share with us what you're seeing in your sectors. Um, And of course, we also wanna thank Aetna Better Health of Kentucky um, for their support of today's Advocate Virtual Forum. Um, I do just want to give a little bit more information about that upcoming summit that I mentioned earlier. Um, So we will be hosting a virtual summit. It's on May 11th, and it's going to be from 930 to noon. Um, And we're going to be going into a lot more detail about really the research that we did and more of the findings. And then as well as some more supplemental data that's going to help to kind of contextualize the needs for youth behavioral health services in Louisville. Um, And so participants are also going to have the opportunity to to listen to an expert panel talk about a complex case study um, and some of the barriers that come up in a case study like that. And then that's going to be followed by small group discussions where participants will be able to identify like really tangible solutions and what they can do to help solve some of these issues, gaps and barriers that we mentioned um, today. And so that's going to include things like action items and next steps that participants can really take part in. Um, so we're really excited about that event. And then the next day after that, we're going to be hosting a um, optional one hour virtual coffee hour networking event. Um, so that's on May 12th from 9 to 10. Um, so before you come back here to join our virtual forum at 10 a.m. that day, you can log on to that and join us um, for a networking event right beforehand. Um So we have registrations up for both of those events. I think they're going to be in the chat, and then they'll also be in um, the follow-up email if you guys are interested in registering. If you um, register or you've already registered, um, we also have an event app that goes along with it. So you can see things like the speakers that are going to be there. Um, You can view the agenda and much more on the app. So make sure you guys check that out as well. Um, And that will also be in the follow-up email. We also, in addition to that event, want to give a look ahead to next week's forum. So we're going to be hearing from uh, Governor Andy Bashir and also the Cabinet for Health and Family Services Secretary Eric Freelander next week um, as we discuss child abuse prevention and supporting Kentucky kids and their families. Um, and that's kind of a wrap up to Child Abuse Prevention Month. So as always, uh, the follow-up email is going to include a recording from today's forum and then also all of the resources that were discussed and links for you guys to sign up for next week's forum and our upcoming events. Um, we just want to say thanks again for everyone for joining us today and have a great rest of your day.
0: Thank you for listening to the Making Kids Count podcast with Terry Brooks. For more information and to listen to more episodes, visit kyouth.org slash podcast. Kentucky Youth Advocates is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization who doesn't accept government money so that we can remain truly independent. To support this podcast and our mission as the independent voice for Kentucky kids, please consider making a gift at kyyouth.org slash donate.